Kia ora everyone and welcome to today's version of the Kaka. Uh, and I'd like to welcome in Raf Manji, who is the leader of the Opportunities Party, or TOP as it's known. Raf, tell us about Teal Card, which you launched yesterday. Return for completing a civic service program, which we think is really important in terms of building social cohesion and giving all of our kids the life skills they need to thrive in, you know, what is a pretty challenging future. Uh, so we're pretty excited about it. The, the, the opportunities in terms of a digital app like this, which can be open to um, third party uh, engagement from, you know, public, private and civic sector um, is pretty exciting. I've had a lot of people already say, oh, what about this? Can we do this? Can we do that? Yes, we probably can. Um, this is what I think we need if we're going to deal with particularly our, our carbon constrained future. Uh, a few people sort of said, oh, where, where was the big climate policy? Um, and I'm going, well, actually, it's the public transport. We want the next generations to be completely comfortable with using public transport, uh, walking and cycling and scootering around. That's what's going to drive emissions reduction on the demand side. Um, and sure, do we need supply responses on more buses, more trains. Yes, we do. And that'll come in, in other policies. So politically, um, is this your version of the gold card? Are you the new Winston? Yes, essentially. We're, we're Winston, but for the next generation. Um, and then you have to say, I mean, the gold card was a great idea. And I think it was, um, it was you know, something that did support the older generations, gave them a little bit of, uh, of extra, essentially, income support um, to get around. But uh, we're focused on, on, you know, the present and future generations. And uh, that's the difference. I mean, someone said, oh, is this the gold card for young people? I said, yeah, essentially it is. Um, but it is also, you know, the digital app nature um, does offer us, you know, I mean, it's particularly around the carbon stuff, like a, a few people have sort of said, what about carbon accounting and carbon credits? And yeah, that can all be incorporated in this. So essentially, this will become your carbon wallet in the future. And what about those people who maybe don't have mobile phones and, um, you know, aren't familiar with the kit, um, uh, maybe differently able to how do you make sure that they don't miss out? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, I mean, we can still have a physical card. I mean, it's hard to imagine a world where our future generations do not have some kind of mobile device. And, you know, we, we could argue that, as we've done with, say, the ultra-fiber uh, uh, broadband rollout, that this stuff is just basic social infrastructure. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, absolutely, issues of accessibility um, uh, need to be dealt with. And again, I've had a lot of suggestions around how we do that. So, yeah, that's something that we have thought about. Now, tell us about this idea of the $5,000 uh, grant to someone who is over the age of 18 and has done a sort of an outward bound course. Could you tell us more about this outward bound course? Yeah, look, I mean... Because from a distance, it looks a, a tad boot campy. Well, well, no, because outward bound is, is not boot campy at all, particularly anyone who knows. Who, I mean, there's four things we, we want to equip people with. Um, it's a, a community service, so that's like a volunteering thing. We're, we're well used to that. that. You know, that's the student volunteer army um, approach to, you know, helping out in your community. Conservation, which is absolutely critical. We could just say things like tree planting, but it's actually getting out into nature, understanding how important the ecosystem is for us and enabling kids to get out and kind of experience that in a kind of structured, taught way. Civil defense, which as we've seen, you know, we saw through the earthquakes, which is where the SVA came from, the Student Volunteer Army. 
We've seen the response up in the Auckland, Auckland floods. There's an Auckland student volunteer army and, and Cyclone Gabrielle. And having a community that is equipped essentially to look after itself after a disaster. And that means equipping people with, with the basic stuff, you know, first aid courses, um, how to deal with disaster communications, how to deal with um, things like polluted waters. So, you know, you can build that into that course. And the fourth bit is civic. So that's kind of civic literacy. And that also will include things like financial literacy and the kind of the basics that we need. If you think about, you know, talking to a lot of people about tertiary education and the education system in general, it's clearly going to change. I mean, the advances we're seeing in artificial intelligence and just the knowledge that is now open source is changing, you know, drastically. Like a lot of people say to me, oh, you know, where's where's all the the evidence and papers for this policy, I'm going, it's all online. I mean, six years ago, a lot of this stuff was not available to the whole community. Now it is. There is so much information out there um, for people to access. So, yeah, so the four Cs, so conservation, civil defense, community service, and civics, we think is really critical. Now, we don't want to make it compulsory. The French have a program, a national civic service program. They're making it compulsory. Now, France has a much, you know, broader sense of nationalism and, and fervor. And they've already run a pilot trial um, a couple of years ago, had you know very good positive outcomes. They want to make it compulsory. We know in New Zealand that doesn't fly. People don't really like compulsory things in New Zealand. So what we're doing is we're creating this um, incentive, which essentially, if you complete this, you can access this $5,000 savings boost. Now, we think that will be a pretty strong incentive it fits into our kind of, you know, basic income approach. We, we want every kid to be able to start at 18, you know, with a bit of dough in the pocket. But we also want them to have these skills as well. And, you know, I, I think most kids will do it. The design of, let's say, a, the residential aspect of it. We want to basically have a sort of IOD, you know, the director's five-day course. But for kids, and Outward Bound have said they're interested in, you know, potentially being the lead designer of the course. They're experts in this. They design courses for all kinds of groups um, run across the country, you know, leveraging the systems we've got, schools, dot camps, Marai, fully funded, supporting, you know, and if you need to take time off to do it, that'll be paid. You've got five years to do it. So we want everyone to get through it by 23. You've got plenty of time. A lot of the other modules, you know, first aid, the financial, the civic, um, We've even put driving lessons in there. And, you know, this, we can put as much stuff as we want in here. It could be a module-based system, like, say, Duke of Edinburgh Award. We're used to doing these things in New Zealand. And I just think it's, it's, it's going to be great for our kids. It's going to build social cohesion, and it's going to equip them with the skills they need in the modern environment. How do you make sure that um, kids who are not very well off, maybe can't afford to get themselves to the camp, uh, maybe are busy working, can't afford the time off, um, that this just turns into a bit of a middle-class welfare, that the kids whose parents can afford to drive them to the camps or that they don't have to work when they're 18 are going to get the $5,000 and the poor kids aren't. No, because that that's not what we said. So, no, that we have that, you know, that is covered. So uh, travel costs, um, work costs are all covered in the program. So essentially, you need to find five days out of five years to do this course. Um, and I think and I hope that a lot of workplaces would probably support this. And given that it's going to be covered in terms of paid, um, that's fine. So, so we, we thought about that very early on. It was one of the first things we thought about. Um, and we made sure in the budget that we had money to cover that. 
Um, and, and, and look, I mean, there'll, there'll be some, you know, I've, I spoke to you know, a fantastic youth worker in Auckland, Aaron Hendry, doing some great stuff, working with, with kids, um, you know, on the verge of homelessness, um, guys coming out of prison. And he said, oh, you know, I, I love this, but not everyone's going to actually be able to <clears throat> able to actually cope with a five day residential course. And it's like, well, yeah, you can design day courses as well. You know, it's, it's the outcome that we want. Um, that is the key thing. Do, do we get kids through? with the skills that they need recognizing um that you know everyone has different challenges and we, and we can design around that and that's actually a good challenge to have as well because we have the same problems in our schools just checking on the um uh, publicly funded healthcare up to the age of 30 yep. what about the idea of some things for example mental health care dental care being available for everyone we've seen this week a call for uh, publicly funded uh, dental care for everyone, full dental care for everyone. Um, why limit that to the age of 30? Yeah, I mean, look, we, we discussed the age limit a lot. And, and we went through, I mean, we looked at 22, we looked at 25, we looked at 27. Uh, we end up with 30. And that was a, a couple of reasons. One, it was the funding. So essentially, this is a funding issue. And of course, a supply issue in terms of delivering the service. And again, the supply side aspects of that will come in our kind of public services policy around investment in, you know, new nurses, dentists, uh, doctors, you know, counsellors. We're very short in those areas. Of course, if we had a decent system, we would have this available to all people. Um, but what I would say is if we get this stuff right up to 30, and that's why, you know, and I'm talking, and I've got mainly a young crew working with me. So, you know, I'm getting feedback from them and they're saying, in a way, like 30 is the old 18, you know, kids are not leaving home at 18 and going off and getting married at 23 and whatever. So you could say that sort of adulthood is uh, is delayed slightly, as, as many of us probably know, um, who've had, <laughs> who've got children. Um, so I think if we if we get this investment right up front and if you get people's teeth into a good state early enough, they should be OK in the future. The mental health if you can get your mental health right up to age 30, you should be okay. Um, so, yeah, of course, um, we want to support all people. But I think as a as a starting point, th this is a good point. And if we get this right and this really starts to work, um, then, of course, you can extend it. But remember, a lot of people won't need to access it. So that extra budget goes back into the pool. And how is it going to be paid for? Um couldn't you just like cancel the gold cards and use the money for that? Yeah, well, actually, the gold card doesn't cost that much. I think the last I saw, it was only about sixty million a year. Um, look, I mean, there's lots. Of, I mean, we we always, and I think this is probably a little bit we're a little bit different. I think to some parties, but I mean, we really do spend a lot of time making sure we can both deliver a policy and fund it. So we actually are very detailed. In, we don't kind of hand wave and say, "Are we going to save four hundred million on consultants?" It's like. Well, great. We could have said that. I could tell you I can cut a billion and a half dollars out of government spending because it's so inefficient. But that, that's not good enough. So, you know, we have very detailed funding um, agreements. So uh, the money for the public transport and uh, the e-bikes comes out of the Climate Response Fund. That's what that is for. And yes, we are putting up the income tax. Um, so the top rate at 39% uh, is going to go to 42%. And we're introducing a new top rate of 250,000 with a tax rate of 45%. That's going to raise about 500 million a year. That's exactly what they've got in Australia, everyone, as you're sort of screaming over your cornflakes. Um, we also propose to put corporate tax up 1% to 29%. And before everyone screams there, the corporate tax rate in Australia is 30%. Okay, so 
we have basically underinvested because we've been running an austerity system, both in public debt um, and the amount we we collect in tax. And if you if you kind of if you don't collect the money, you end up with a poor public sector, and that's what we've got. We've had years of underinvestment. I mean, I know you go on about this a lot, but I just want to be clear to people: we have had years of underinvestment, and if we have to make a decision now, are we going to change that? And we think we need to. So this is not instead of the um, the land tax, land right. value tax that right. you've talked about. That's still yes. on the on the cards. Yeah. yeah, and and some of the questions we've got from uh, readers as yeah. well were around. Um, encouraging people to take up public transport on the demand yeah. side, but um, I'm guessing, what, should, what are your plans for the supply side on public yeah, transport? So I mean, because so at the moment, sort of our, our climate policy, which we're releasing probably after Easter, what what we've we've laid out in broad terms is, yeah, we need to decarbonize our public transport system. Most of our energy system is decarbonized. Our industrial processes we need to further decarbonize. That's going to require a huge investment in public transport. Where do we put the money? Um, our focus will be probably on buses, bus rapid transport, and we need to invest more in not just the actual buses, but the people who drive the buses. So that is absolutely critical. So that's going to be a two to three year workforce plan. That That is very important. So that's the supply side. And the same thing with the supply side on the health side. Do we need another medical school? Yes. Has the medical profession had high barriers to entry? Yes. Do we have a competition problem in New Zealand? Yes. Do we need another nurse training school? Yes. Are we going to fund it? Yes. You know, I mean, th these are the sort of things that we'll be talking about on the supply side of things, because a lot of these issues are supply side. So we want to drive the demand in basically, you know, I mean, I grew up, I went to school from you know little kid on the bus and the tube. You didn't think about it. Now, I can't go on the bus and the tube in Christchurch because there isn't any tube and the, the buses are, are getting better, getting better, but we need more of them. And if you put more on and you tell people actually, you know, you're being funded to go on the bus, they will go on the bus. And then that becomes a lifetime habit. So essentially, we're trying to sort of create good habits for people to deal with a, a, a situation that is coming where fossil fuels are going to be phased out. We're going to wake up one day and realize, actually, there is no more fossil fuel coming. Um, and the cost of importing that fossil fuel is going to go up. And our balance of payments is already in a sticky position. We're importing over $10 billion of fossil fuels a year. Now, we could do a lot more with that money if we were generating that energy domestically. So these are the questions on the supply side that we need to think about. We've got competition issues and we need to invest, you know, very clearly in boosting our own, you know, low carbon infrastructure. And on the tactical political side for top, uh, um, if I'm looking at top from a distance, uh, the election's not that far away, October the 14th, um, why would I vote for top if it's only got one or two percent in the polls and I know they need to get to five percent to get in? I think, look, I, th I think we have hit a wall in MMP. It's been, you know, whatever, is it 27 years or something like that of MMP? It, it has reached a, a stasis point and I think everyone can feel it. It's the vote for National Labour is kind of, you know, stuck at around 70 percent just above. The small parties are all sort of getting little bits and pieces here. You know, Greens and ACT are pretty steady, around 10%. Then there's the party Māori, there's us, there's New Zealand First. It, it feels like the, the MMP system is coming to a shuddering halt. Yet, because of the threshold, the threshold essentially is impeding, let's say, the next iteration of democratic politics in New Zealand. It's a huge problem. And I think... 
what, what I'm seeing, you know, actors say, well, they might go on the cross benches. We've said we're going on the cross benches. The party Māori saying they're going on the cross benches. The Greens, unfortunately, have still attached themselves to Labour. The problem for them, I think they need to. I think they need to pull the plug and say we're going to be independent, because nobody has actually thought what does a Labour Green cabinet look like? What does a National Act cabinet look like? We haven't had them before. Now, I think for top, what we offer is a steady hand in the political centre, not so much our policies are not so much centrist, but in terms of politically, we can work with both sides. And we see ourselves not as a New Zealand first, which let's say New Zealand first has controlled the first 27 years of MMP very well, very astutely. Um, They've been a handbrake. We see ourselves as a filter, a filter for good policy. That's all we're interested in. And we don't really care where it comes from. When you say on the cross benches, you'd still have to realistically, say which of the big parties you'd support from a supply and confidence point of view. Otherwise, if you had all the the three smaller parties, or maybe four, if New Zealand First gets back in, and everyone was on the crossbenches, it would be, and none of them committed supply and confidence to anyone, essentially neither Labour or National could go to the Governor-General and say, we have the confidence of the House to get supply through and exist without um, getting kicked out every five minutes with a no-confidence vote. So are you able to say, yep, we will commit to someone <laughs> with supply and confidence, or we're really hardcore crossbenchers, we're never going to you know, commit ourselves ahead of time to anything? No, what, we would, what our position is actually, you know, we would abstain on a vote of no-confidence. So essentially, whichever party wins the most votes will be the government. And I think that's fair. And if that's, you know, Labour and Greens or National Act, let, let them work that out. Then our job is, is well, once the government is established and you can go to the Governor General, you know, with a min- minority government, um, we will support that. But then we will take each policy as it comes. Now, but the reality of that is, you know, w- there'll be specific areas we're interested in for sure, and we're not going to sit around kind of blocking stuff. It's actually trying to make policy better. But, you know, with a, with a limited number of MPs, our, our focus will clearly be the tax system and making sure that is rebalanced so that we kind of support work and innovation um, and we tax stuff which doesn't really deliver too much like land. Um, and that will be our focus. And I think that, I think that can work. Um, as opposed to, you know, the idea that, oh, every policy is going to be dragged through the mud. No, I mean, that, that's kind of silly because that, that's not the reality of it. And I think even... Even when you look at New Zealand First and you know their coalition agreement of 2017, I mean they did, you know there's a lot of stuff they let go. There's a lot of stuff because there's a limit to how much time you've got to spend on these things. So, but I think what it is saying to to people, it's not about picking sides. We're pretty clear from our policies where our interests lie, and you know when we talk about climate change, you know I was up with climate businesses in Auckland last week. They're totally focused on dealing with the issue. They want clarity from the government so that they can make those investment decisions and get their capital allocation right. And their frustration is with government constantly changing, you know, like bonfire of the policies. And it's like, what's going on? We need a very long-term approach to this stuff. But just checking on this supply and confidence uh, thing, um, are you saying that you wouldn't commit to supply and confidence to either side regardless? Because in the past, the price for supply and confidence has been certain policies or certain ministerial roles. Are you saying you wouldn't do one of these post-election 
coalition or cooperation agreements which delivered supply and confidence in exchange for policies and ministerial roles? No, we're not interested in ministerial roles at all. We're just interested in policy. And I think, and I mean, what we've seen with the Greens, and I mean, this is my opinion, um, I don't think they should have taken those ministerial roles. I think they would have been much stronger had they not done that. And I think, you know, they, they take a different view. They think it's better to be in the tent. I think they would have had a much stronger position outside of the tent. Um, but you're say, so you're saying um, you, you wouldn't take ministerial roles, but you could bargain for a policy gain in exchange for supply and confidence. Look, I mean, I, I think that's a possibility. But of course, you know, who knows? I mean, no one's rushing forward to say they agree with our policies. Um, so I think you probably have a lot more leverage actually just sitting on the cross benches outside a, a confidence and supply agreement. But clearly, once the government is established, that's the government. And then it's a question of policy. Um, but- now, on, on, on MMP, yeah. um, I think you're right about, you know, things settling into a rut. Uh, but it is no one's expecting the threshold to be dropped from 5% anytime soon. So realistically, your only hope, um, unless there's some dramatic poll surge above 5% in the next couple of months, is to win the Ilam seat and bring in uh, a few MPs on your coattails. Yes. Um, uh, w- what is the prospect of you winning Ilam? How can you know people in Auckland and Gisborne um, feel about you know potentially wasting their vote if if um, they they give it to top and then you lose Ilam? Yeah, look, I, I look. I mean, I think on the wasted vote, I think we have to come to the real. It's not a wasted vote. You know, vote for what you think is the right thing. That's really critical. Um, in terms of Ireland, look, I mean, I'm back here. I'm just actually watching a bus go past my front my front door. Um, you know, at the launch yesterday, I was talking to local Ireland supporters. You know, about the prospects, they're pretty positive. I mean, essentially, for people who, who don't know Ireland very well, I was a city councillor here from 2013 to 2019 in the ward, which is essentially the electorate ward. I'm reasonably well known here. Um, I stood in 2017 as an independent and came second, uh, beating, you know, the Labour candidate. And I think, you know, generally, that National has a pretty weak candidate here um, who ran in Wigram last time um, and, and lost. Uh, the Labour MP is not particularly well known here, you know, ranked 62 on the list. So, you know, m- my pitch in Ireland is very much a uh, a Christchurch voice in Wellington um, that knows central and local government very well. Local government is going to become a bigger and bigger issue. We've got the three waters issue um, potentially being uh, moved again today. So, yeah, I think I've got a pretty good chance there. Uh, and w- once we get into the proper campaign and the debates, I think that's where things will really show up in terms of the advantage of having somebody who really knows both Christchurch and Wellington very well and Auckland and is well connected across, um, you know, multiple sectors uh, with a pretty broad experience. So I think we've got, I think we've got a good chance here. Any polling? Um, You know, we're doing a little bit. Um, We're probably going to do a big poll, maybe probably after the budget, you know, just when we've had a little bit more exposure and we've, uh, you know, door knocked a little bit more. But, uh, yeah, generally the feedback is good. Um, obviously, I haven't been here for a couple of years since I left council. So, you know, there's a bit of work to do there. But I, like I said, once we get into the debate side of things, um, I'll be speaking here as the leader of a party um, against two, you know, two pretty inexperienced um, uh, candidates. So, you know, we'll see. Um, anything can happen. 
And would you be open to some sort of, you know, cup of tea arrangement with um, National or Labor where they just nudge, nudge, wink, wink, say, we'll give you Ilum if you give us supply and confidence? Yeah, I mean, I, I don't think things work like that. I mean, I think, you know, I'm always happy to have a cup of tea with someone called Chris. Um, but, you know, I'll, <laughs> I'll, I'll leave that. We had these conversations in 2017. It, it, it's, it's, it rarely kind of happens. I think Epsom was quite sort of a weird one. And I think parties have actually moved away from that um, to, to some extent. We've actually got a very good candidate in Epsom who could, uh, who could be uh, a bit of a dark horse um, there. But I think, like I said, you know, I say to people here, look, whoever wins the most seats, that's going to be the government. And it should have been the case in 2017. And if we go back to 2017, Winston was the guy who set all this stuff in motion and probably put an inexperienced government into play. And I think we're kind of still feeling the effects of that. And the fact that all these policies are being wound back, it kind of says, you know, it's like the government's giving itself a, a fail mark uh, for the last three years, which is probably not a good place to be. Now, the Greens um, were were uh, torched in the bonfire of the policies last week. And um, there's been quite a bit of internal discussion about um, uh, whether it was worth being with Labour in this term. Uh, um, is top going for green voters who are uh, maybe frustrated that they're being ignored by Labour because they've always said we'll only ever go with Labour? Yeah, look, I mean, this is a, a, an eternal problem and an eternal issue that comes up. and we And we know that the the Green membership do not support any kind of engagement with National at all, and that's the problem. Um, if I was James, and he's not going to agree with this, I, he should resign. I think I think the Greens should cut themselves away from Labour now and focus on their election campaign. You know, they've got a strong message, they've got a you know a, a good support base, and they should focus and say this is what we're going to push in the election. And it's very difficult when you're the Minister of Climate Change and all your policies are thrown out the door and you can't do anything about it. I'd be telling them to get stuffed. It's really, it's. I mean, that's the problem with the position that they're in. Um, and then they can kind of go, you know, then they can really get cracking and actually tell us what they really think. And James is not conflicted in the position that he's in. And Labour know that the Greens are only going to go with them. So they don't really have to try hard. And in fact, they're quite happy to leave the Greens to do their thing. And Labour can move much more to the centre and pretend that actually they do like people who drive cars. And yeah, the Greens were sort of a bit of a pain, but we'll sort of do a little bit as required to keep them on board. But what's a, what's a Labour-Green government going to look like? That could be pretty messy. So, I mean, who knows? I think everything is up for grabs in this election. And I think people just have to vote for the party that they think matches their values and, in, and interests. Um, Finally, Raf, what do you think um, the top party would say to Green voters who argue, you know, if you ever put a national party in, at least on climate and all other things, things would be much, much worse than than Labour? How do you push back? Yeah, that? well, I think it goes back to the, the our electoral position is that we're not putting anyone in. We're, you know, in, in a way, we kind of don't care who the government is. Someone's got to be the prime minister. Someone's got to be in cabinet. We're focused on policy. So all I can say is that we will only support progressive policy and we will block regressive policy. It's as simple as that. But if you gave supply and confidence to National, they'd have all the ministerial roles, everything in cabinet, control the budgets. And even if they couldn't change legislation, you can do an awful lot as a minister. So the Greens would say, sure, you're not voting for particular policies that are going through Parliament, but by the mere fact of giving them supply and confidence, you're 
unleashing them into the world. Yeah, we're not giving them the supply of confidence. That's the thing. We're abstaining on on the confidence vote. That's that's a key thing. And of course, this this all depends. If Labour and the Greens, all National and Act, have sixty one seats, then this this conversation is irrelevant. They're going to do whatever they like. My sense is from the polling that is not going to be the case. This is going to be a very close election. So. You could have a, let's say you had a National Act government, they had 59 seats um, and they, they were in government. That means there are still 61 seats on the other side in terms of a green policy and legislation. That is the key thing. So actually, there is a lot, you know, the way I see it is there is a lot that can be achieved regardless of who is in government. Is Do you have the votes in Parliament to put these policies through? Now, if, if it's the other way around and Labour and the Greens have 59 seats, again, same story on the other side. Um, so I think, and obviously because the party Māori have been quite, you know, they've also been reasonably cagey to say actually they're going to go on the crossbenches too. Labour and the Greens, because they're being quite clear, Labour and the Greens cannot take their vote for granted either. But of course, when you look at the policy approaches, uh, you know, to party Māori, you know, top greens, you know, we're all very focused on climate, we're focused on supporting uh, people in general. And, you know, we probably have a lot of policy crossover, even though the policies are different. So like, you know, you know, removing GST on food sounds good, but we know actually that's not particularly efficient policy. So we would say, actually, why don't we have a, why don't we have a carbon dividend? That's probably a much better approach, put money into people's pockets, and then get more competition into the supermarket sector. That's what's going to drop prices. So, yeah, I mean, I think it's, it's, it's slightly complex um, and I think there's going to be more discussion about how this is going to work. But we, we, we've, we're reasonably comfortable with our position um, and we can't, you know, we can't determine uh, how people are going to vote just, for the just, other big parties. You know. Just to clarify, what is that position on supply and confidence? From listening to this, I'm hearing we will not give a confidence, but we could give someone supply. No, I mean, our position is that we'll be on the crossbenches. We will not be in cabinet. We will not be in a coalition uh, with anyone. We hope that we will have influence on policy, which means that we don't have a, um, you know, Labour or Green or National Act coalition, which has 61 seats. If they have 61 seats, it doesn't matter. They're going to do what they want. So let's be really clear about that. But the polling shows that is not likely to happen. And that the smaller parties, if they're in parliament, could have some influence. So that's it. So, so, people, so people are going to make their choices. They might go, well, I'm just going to vote national or act, or I'm going to vote Labour or Greens. Um, but my sense is that, and the voting will, will be all over the place, I think, over the next six months in terms of the polling. Our, our, our sort of thrust is, OK, we need to get into parliament. We think we can be a strong voice for good policy whether we have influence or not in terms of pure voting power. Uh, and then if we get in there, we're going to sit on the cross benches. We will abstain on votes of confidence. So I take our votes out and then whoever has the most votes uh, becomes the government. And then we will uh, negotiate from our position. And if there is not a, a full majority in parliament, then we will have influence around policy stuff. That, that, that is, so it's quite fine. But and I think, for, but I think for a small, a small party, you know, this is not the sort of Peter Dunn era where you know he just got a nice ministerial position and you know whatever. Um, not sure what was achieved. Maybe a few things. 
so we're in a very different environment now. And, and, and I think it speaks to MMP wanting to go into a new era, but being obviously stuck with that 5% threshold. And, and, I, and, I, get yeah, the, and I think the, elect, I get, the Electoral Commission review will come back and, and recommend, as the, the Law Commission did in 2012, dropping the threshold to 4%. We know that's going to come. And nothing will and change. Nothing will change. Uh, but now, yeah, so just to really be clear, I've got it in my own yeah. head at least that you'll abstain on confidence, but you're not ruling out giving someone supply on budget votes um, at the beginning of the parliament. I mean, I mean that's certainly possible. If someone sort of said, look, we, we would like your um, you to be in the tent and we're going to support the teal card policy um, and we're going to look at the... We're going to look at a land value tax, but maybe at a lower rate and whatever. Sure, we would entertain that. I don't think that's going to happen. Um, and I just think we'll be in a stronger position um, just going policy by policy in the areas that we're interested in. Um, otherwise, we take a pretty pragmatic approach. We can't do everything, um, and nor should we as a small as a small party. So we're very clear. People will be voting for us for you know specific areas we're focused on. Yes, we will have views on everything. <clears throat> do you know? Do should we increase the defence budget? Probably we should for lots of good reasons. But you know, is that going to a core thing we're interested in? No. Do we have a view on international relations? Yeah, but that's not a core thing that we're focused on here. Araf, thank you very much for um, a chance for me to grill you and uh, talk about Teal and the Teal card and um, looking forward to the climate policy because I'm a geek and that sounds like a fun it's, thing it's, to talk It's, it's going to be fun and it might be a bit nerdy, but it'll be good. Thank you very much. Raf Manji there, the leader of the Opportunities Party and also TOPS candidate for Ilam talking here on the Kaka. Kaki Town. Thanks, Bernard. See you.